You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. The, um, the complexity of some of the disputes here was, um, was also different in the sense that um, uh, we had more time probably to, to, to look into disputes here in the WTO and, to, and, and the process here was probably more complex. And, and so, so it gave you the opportunity when you were working in, in legal affairs to devote yourself uh, to fewer cases with a lot more concentration and, and, and work on them for, for longer periods of time. So, so from, an in, from my personal point of view, it was a very different job. That was Jorge Castro. I am Rodolfo Rivas, and this is my podcast. Welcome to it. Jorge Castro is a chief of section at the World Trade Organization Institute for Training and Technical Cooperation, ITTC, in Geneva, Switzerland. Jorge is a very experienced professional on the regional and multilateral front. He worked for the Venezuelan government and then for the Indian community before making his way to the WTO. He was in legal affairs for many years before a stint at Pascal Lamy's DG office and now as chief of section at ITTC. We covered a lot of ground in our conversation. And if you stick to the end of the episode, you can hear a new section in the podcast, which I look forward to incorporating from now on. Let me know what you think. I apologize for the gap between this and the last episode. That is life, and I have plenty of things on my plate. Thankfully, we are back, and I can wait for you to listen to this one. Stay tuned to catch it. Subscribe if you still need to. I hope you enjoy the conversation. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help spread the word by recommending us to your friends or your enemies. A small act like liking, subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in the conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. Jorge, thank you for accepting my invitation. I'm really happy to host you for this conversation. Thank you for having included me in the group of uh, distinguished people who you have called you for are. similar conversations you before. You are distinguished. Uh, Jorge, I've known you for, I mean, we have many common friends, but I actually don't think we've actually ever had an opportunity to talk. So I'm hoping that today we, we get to do that. Can we start at the very beginning? You, where are you originally from? I am from Venezuela. Venezuela. Yes, I was born in Venezuela in 1966, and I lived uh, my childhood between Venezuela and Italy and Italy. other places because my, um, my mother is uh, originally from Italy, and both my parents were attending university when they had me, so they, uh, after I was born, we returned to Italy for some years. So you were bicultural at home? We are, yes. <laughs> multicultural, Multi. I would say. <laughs> like in many families here in Geneva, we are multicultural. My wife is from New Zealand, and so our daughters uh, have this mixed 
cultural background? I, that, that is one of the treasures of living in a city like this. And I, I similarly like you, I have like an international family and I, it reminds me a lot of the, the John Lennon song about Imagine, like, uh, <laughs> but when growing up, how, how, how was it growing up? How, what were some of your influences? Let's see. Uh, well, I think uh, culturally we were very much integrated in Venezuela because although my mother is Italian, she grew up in Venezuela. So there was a very strong Latin uh, culture in which we grew. And the Italian culture itself is not very distant either. Yeah. So um, uh, even though we had this mixed background, I couldn't say it was very diverse in terms of influence because many of the cultural references were similar. Probably. And how was the food? Imagine the food was amazing at home. Good food, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, it, it, and it gave me um, uh, a, a, a liking, not just for enjoying food, but also for preparing food. Also. So I like, I, I like cooking for my family and for my friends. And I think that also comes from, from, a, from, a, from the Italian side of the family, probably. Um, and you are a lawyer, uh, my I am. When did you When did you get this itch to become a lawyer? Was it something from the family or? My, I think my initial uh, intention of studying law school was probably developed very early on when I was in high school and I was involved in student government and I was always uh, looking at the regulations of the school and trying to defend. Uh, the rights of students at school. So, so I think that that's where my initial instinct for, for studying law came from. Uh, frankly, I wasn't totally sure when, when the time arrived to go to university of which career I would like to follow. I, I was undecided between political sciences, law, and journalism. journalism. And, um, and at the end, I, I opted for law because I thought in the, in the Venezuelan context, law would open the possibility of doing other things, including journalism or including political science if it came the moment, whereas the other careers were probably more limiting at the time. Yeah, actually, that's, that's also something that I told myself that uh, a law career can give you flexibility. And I think it did. Like, what, what are your thoughts? You think it did for you? I think it did. I think it did. But, but for a very long time, I, I, I wasn't sure whether it had been the right decision. I wasn't totally convinced I'm about it. I'm still not convinced now. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and certainly I wasn't aware of the existence of trade law, for example. That's not something we would study in law school in Venezuela at the time. Uh, so it was not an option. And, uh, and I think I ended up by accident in trade law. Uh, I've, I've heard some of the um, stories of some of the people you have interviewed before. And, and, and one, one thing that I find fascinating is that um, everyone has arrived probably to this um, sector through different paths, so different career paths and life choices. And in my case, it was a very particular life choice. And, and it wasn't totally by design. So it How was, was more it by... Then? Actually, yeah, many of, uh, of my previous guests have had many is what they always wanted and many others it was just by luck, also in my case. 
Mm-hmm. But tell me, how was it? Yeah, no, so I, I couldn't say I was among those that um, was planning to get into trade law when I was young. I, I wasn't, I, I didn't even, like I said, I, I, I didn't even know the existence of trade law for most of my studies in, in law school. Um, and um, I started teaching at the university as, after I graduated administrative law and working in a research institute at the university. And while I was working there... This was immediately after it was graduating? Me- immediately after graduating. I started, I, I was, during the final years of my career, I was a teaching assistant, and then when I graduated, I was offered a course. This is something that probably doesn't happen all around the world, that you can get a course fresh out of law school, but it did happen in Venezuela at the time. But at the time, were you interested in research? Were you interested in teaching? Yes. Was that something yeah. that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, teaching and research was probably what I was most attracted to in the area of administrative law. And, um, and I had the luck of having a mentor, a, a professor, who insisted that for a, anybody who really wanted to work in administrative law, you, you should go and work in government for a while. So not just stay in the ivory tower of the university looking at things from a theoretical point of view, but you should get some practice. And so she encouraged me to go and work in the public administration in government. And it so happened that she was good friends um, with someone at the Ministry of Labor. So she recommended me to go and work at the Ministry of Labor. But when she made the call, the phone line was busy. And so she couldn't get a hold of her colleague there. And then uh, all of this happened while I was there with her in the in the office, and she said, "What about the Ministry of Economic Development?" Oh my God! And I said, <laughs> "Sure." And and that call went through, and so I ended up working in the legal department of the Ministry of Economic Development at a time when I didn't know Venezuela was going through a big transformation process of its economy, uh, discussing accession to the GATT and reforming all its trade policy. So I ended up having to learn very quickly about trade and about all these issues, which I had no idea about, but it was a very interesting moment in time for for me. This this story is amazing. (laughs) How just one one moment changed the the whole trajectory of your life. Absolutely. And uh, what what year was this? This was 1990, 1989, 1990. So you were immediately dealing with all of these topics that you had to learn as you go. Exactly. How was that experience? It was was funny because one of the first things that I was assigned to do was to look at a study that had been commissioned by the government at the time to introduce an anti-dumping law to Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela hadn't had the need to have an anti-dumping law before that because it was a very protected economy. But as Venezuela was acceding to the GATT and was lowering its tariffs and opening its economy, then there was um, a a perception that there was a need to put into place also some um, trade remedies legislation. So so, so a, a study was commissioned to an American university to prepare a project for the feasibility of establishing a trade a, a trade remedies regime, and um, and I was asked to look at it from the point of view of Venezuelan legislation, and I had no idea what dumping was or any of these things, and of course it's not like now that you can just Google the word and and and, and have access to a lot of information. We didn't have um, internet at the time, <laughs> and uh, and we didn't have a very 
a good library in the ministry either were to look at these things. So it was, uh, it took some research to try to understand all these basic concepts, uh, but it opened a whole new world to me. And then when a, a few months later, I decided to go and, and pursue a master's degree. Then I was uh, more convinced that I wanted, rather than, than focus on administrative law, domestic administrative law, I wanted to uh, pursue a degree on international relations and international economic issues. And that's what I did. Um, and this was after a couple of years working there in the ministry? Yeah. Where did you go to study? I went to Georgetown yeah. to pursue a master's in international relations, Georgetown. And how was that? How was that was a great experience. Eye-opening? Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, one of the, the best things that, that could happen to me is you realize at that point how much you don't know. Because, you know, having come from a relatively parochial education, I, I, I grew up in, in, not in Caracas, but in, in, the, in, the, in the Venezuela, in a, in a small Venezuelan province. And so having had a very parochial education, um, you tend to become a bit complacent. And, and but, but you still had like a pretty world education, like traveling to Italy. I did as a child, yes. But then I lived for a very long time in, in, in different regions in Venezuela. We moved from region to region because my father was um, a, a, a medical doctor specialized in public health. So he was moving around quite a bit. And, uh, and yeah, so we, we, we lived a lot in rural towns in Venezuela. And yes, and you get a bit complacent and you, 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 you have a lot of certainties. I think growing as a, a, as a child in that context and then it was really good to go to Georgetown and have all these certainties shattered at some point <laughs> and realize how much you don't know and how much you, you need to learn. And then Georgetown is a, a university that actually fits to international, to many professionals in this area where we currently work. Absolutely. How was it dealing with many of those professionals coming from other countries? It was, you know, it was great and, and the thing is, Quite frankly, in the master's program that I was, um, most people were not necessarily in, um, focused on international trade issues. Mm. I myself wasn't totally convinced at that point in time that, I, that trade was the main area of my interest. At that time, I was mostly interested in, in energy issues and environmental issues. Um, Even back then. Yeah, yeah, because Venezuela, well, of course, was a big oil exporter. And I thought um, the intersection between being an oil producer, but also growing environmental concerns was, a, was an interesting area to, to focus on. So a lot of the courses I took were mostly on energy issues and environmental issues during my master's program. But then um, progressively, I, I also took a few courses on international trade, which I thought were, were quite interesting. And when I finished my master's, I, I, I had the opportunity to stay a year longer in the U.S. And so what I did was I, I ended up in a, in a small town called Ann Arbor in, in Michigan. And um, I didn't have uh, the resources to enroll in, a, in, a, in, a, in an LLM, in an additional master's program at that point. But I did talk to um, an academic that was working at the university at that time. And, and was one of the uh, 
the fundamental of the fundamental students of scholars of international trade law at the time. And he was very happy to allow me to join his course, to sit in his course with the condition that I would have to do the same work as everyone else. And so I sat in his course for one semester and then in a seminar that he had, a smaller seminar on international trade issues for an additional semester. And that was totally formative for me. That was um, Professor John Jackson, yeah. who was teaching at that time in, in Michigan. Uh, but going back to Georgetown, uh, did you watch any Hoyas game? I was too poor <laughs> when I was in Georgetown, so I would Because watch them on time, TV. At that time, we probably had like some of these big uh, figures. Absolutely. And yes, Alonso Morning. Yeah. yeah, no, I watched a lot of basketball on TV. <laughs> yeah. well, because Venezuela is also a big uh, country for basketball. Absolutely. Uh, and baseball. Baseball as well. Yeah, but going back to Professor Jackson, I didn't want to distract you from your thoughts. So you were kind of surveying the, the course, but you did all of the work. I was, that was the condition to attend the classes that I would do all the work and I would participate in the seminar as anybody else. And at that time, it was like you were full in with uh, international trade. That was when you were like, and, okay, this is what and, I want to do. Yeah, I think at that point I realized this is what I want to do professionally. Uh, but before you mentioned that... Uh, Initially, your interest was in energy, where at that point you were thinking of coming back to, to Venezuela. Yeah. And at that time, quite frankly, if, if you were um, a good student in most of the careers in Venezuela, the main aspiration that you would have was to end up working for the oil industry. The oil industry had great jobs and great career opportunities for people in, in most sectors, of course, in engineering, for sure but also professionals like, uh, like law or econom economists, etc. Uh, so everyone who was, you know, the brightest people in my, in my class would, would all end up working for the oil industry. So then what happened after uh, Michigan? So after Michigan, I went back to Venezuela and then I started working on trade. I was offered to work in the newly created Anti-Dumping Commission. Ah, so the one that you had worked on before. I, yes, yeah. exactly. I had worked, um, let's say, when, when, when it was only an idea, when it was still at a conceptual level, and a discussion about the convenience or not of having such a regime. But then I ended up working in the commission as head of the legal department. And I worked there for a couple of years. And after that, uh, one of the members of the commission was appointed in Lima, in the Andean Community Secretariat. And, uh, and he told me of an opening in the legal office of the Andean Community Secretariat. And I thought it would be an interesting option to explore. The Andean Community at that point in time was undergoing a substantial transformation um, with, uh, with, with very big steps taken in terms of um, a, the creation of the free trade area and, uh, and, and a common external policy. And so it seemed like a very interesting time to go and join the, the Andean community. And I worked there for several years. And uh, how was the transition from working from a government to like a plurilateral organization where you were part of the secretariat? Yeah, well, it's in, from a substantive point of view, the work wasn't very different because the, 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 the topics that we were working on were very similar. But of course, the approach was totally different 
because uh, as, a, as a member of the Secretariat, you were, you were um, participating in this uh, integration effort. And one of the um, attributions that the Andean Community Secretariat has is also to make sure that countries are complying with their commitments under Andean community rules. So, so there was an element there where we were working in preparing in rules for the Andean community to submit to the, to the discussion and, and approval by, by member countries, but also we were in, uh, checking monitoring compliance and uh, whenever we found instances of non-compliance, we were taking these countries to task, we uh, were bringing them mm, before the Andean Court of Justice. So, so the Andean Secretariat played both roles, played a, um, a supportive role of, uh, to countries in, in the preparation of those rules, but also in uh, monitoring compliance and, and enforcing compliance before the Court of Justice. And at this point, when you were doing this kind of work, you you didn't miss the research and teaching that you had initially thought about. I I missed I missed it, but um, but actually, I, I soon found the possibility of engaging in teaching again in in this country. So when I was in uh, living in Peru for five years, I also taught at the law school uh, in the Catholic University of Peru in Lima and in other universities. I had regular courses in undergrad and in at, at a graduate level. And, um, and in fact, um, that's one of the things that I missed most since I came to Geneva because I, I, I have not been able to organize myself as well and, and to be able to teach regularly since I have joined the WTO Secretariat as I had when I was in Lima, for example. I see. Well, because it is something that you mentioned that you had an interest in. I assume that that never leaves you. Yes. <laughs> and... Uh, So at this point, was it the point where you joined the WTO or what did you do after the Andean community? Yes, when I was in the Andean community, uh, after a few years uh, of working there, one of the things we did in the Andean community, of course, is we, we had a lot of um, relations with other international bodies or international organizations, including the WTO Secretariat. And working in the WTO Secretariat was something that, that always appealed. And so um, I had a very good friend of mine who had also come to join the uh, WTO Secretariat a, a few months before, and, and, and he's one of the people that you have interviewed before, Alan, Alan Janovic. I was going to ask you about Alan because yeah. his path seems similar to you. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we worked together in the Andean community, and Alan was one of those who was always trying to convince me to apply to, uh -huh. to openings in the WTO. And, uh, and I did. So whenever there was an opening, and, uh, and at that time it wasn't through the internet that you would find out. Very often it was in the pages of The Economist or in other publications yeah, that you would see yeah. some um, notices of openings. And I would regularly uh, send my, my application, uh, prompted by, very often by Alan, but without much expectation of receiving any response until one day, out of the blue, it was certainly not the first time that I had applied, but one day, out of the blue, I, was, I received a phone call and an invitation to come to a, an interview in Geneva. And this was in which uh, division? Legal Affairs Division. Legal Affairs. So that's where, because when I met you, you were there. So mm -hmm. that's where you joined and where you stayed for? Yeah, for many time. years. I joined in August 2003. So almost exactly 20 years ago, 
And there I worked for, yeah, for at least 15 years, more or less. And uh, you came and you were closer to Italy here. Exactly. <laughs> so I could, I could travel easily to visit my family. But moving, what were some of the differences that you would say uh, from the Andean community to, to the WTO? Well, several differences. One is that in the um, scope of the work here was more limited in the sense that in the Andean community, in, in the legal department, we, uh, we provided a lot more support for countries um, uh, with respect to the preparation of all these rules or, or the initiatives normally came from the secretariat not from members themselves. In how, terms how big was the secretariat of the Andean community at the time? I'm, I'm guessing, I, I can't remember right now, but probably around 200 people. Okay. So it was proportionally very large because uh, at the time the WTO secretariat was probably less than 600 people. So, so considering that the Andean community was only five countries, it was proportionally a large secretariat. Uh, and um, And yes, yeah, so we did a lot of um, work in terms of preparing the rules. All the initiatives of um, rulemaking in the Andean community normally came from the Secretariat. And we also um, did um, the, the monitoring for compliance. Um, so, so, so all of that, of course, uh, we don't do at the, at, at the Secretariat. There's a very limited role in the WTO Secretariat in terms of Either we, we don't, on the one hand, we don't have the, the authority here to propose any rules. It's the members who propose the, the rules and negotiate the rules. And uh, we also um, don't uh, take countries to court for not complying with, with the rules. It's the uh, members themselves who decide whether they want to um, take a case to dispute settlement in the WTO. So, so the, the scope of the, of the work of the Secretariat was quite different. And, and therefore, I guess the approach of the work was different. Um, but then, uh, then of course, the, um, the complexity of some of the disputes here was, um, was also different in the sense that um, uh, we had more time probably to, to, to look into disputes here in the WTO and, to, and, and the process here was probably more complex And, and so, so it gave you the opportunity when you were working in, in legal affairs to devote yourself uh, to fewer cases with a lot more concentration and, and, and work on them for, for longer periods of time. So, so from, an in, from my personal point of view, it was a very different job. So you were, when you were here in legal affairs, you were focusing exclusively on, on cases? Well, I was uh, mostly advising panels that were adjudicating disputes among members and uh, yeah and, and that means you know set, uh, helping them with setting up the logistics of their work in terms of timetable setting up meetings with the parties receiving um, written submissions etc but also supporting them with research and once um, the panel had an idea on how they wish to decide a particular issue helping them also uh, in terms of putting those ideas in writing. And working with, uh, with disputes, I think, wasn't a really exciting time because this is where, when everything was happening, in, like a lot was happening through disputes. How, how was it uh, dealing with all of these 
I mean, for you, you you said that it was a bit different from the Andean community, but dealing with this new dispute settlement system, how was it uh, trying to kind of like also you were trying to figuring as it was going on? Is that right or am I wrong? Yeah, no, it was. It's it's a great experience for for many things. One is when you are working on a particular case, and I, I guess that that doesn't only happen here; it happens in general. But you you become an expert on a very narrow topic. It had happened to me before when I was in private practice or when I was working for government, etc. You become an expert in a particular industry or in a particular product, etc., to the extent that you would have never imagined yeah. because you're working for months on a particular case, on a particular provision, etc. And, um, and so, yeah, that's very interesting. But then there's also a human factor. You, you meet people who, who are amazing here from all over the world. You meet them because they're delegates from the parties that are participating in a dispute, or you meet them because they're colleagues of yours in the secretariat, or you meet them because they're panelists. And, um, and I've had that privilege of working with, uh, with amazing people that I don't know if I would have met uh, you know, elsewhere, uh, people from all over the world who have, who, you know, who have just amazing careers, and, 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 and I've learned a lot from that. So, so so yeah, no, it's been a it's been an amazing experience. And then there's also um, uh, one of the interesting things about dispute settlement is that very often um, you find yourself that that the work that you're doing uh, can lead to to some concrete uh, resolution of something. And I and and I find that very um, uplifting and very you know satisfying. That, that you see the, the practical results of, of all those months of work, because very often countries are able, uh, thanks to those reports, to find a solution to a particular trade dispute. And when you see that happening, it's really satisfying. Yes, it's true. In, in, it, it doesn't happen always. I mean, <laughs> th there are those cases that uh, where, where members cannot find a solution despite uh, those rulings. But I would say in, in WTO tradition, that has tended to be the exception. In most cases, I think in the reports that are produced by panels and in the past by the appellate body have been a useful uh, element to help parties find a mutually agreed solution that, that is compatible with the rules of the WTO. Yes, it's true. And uh, dealing with disputes for, for many years, What what uh, led you to decide to have a change? Well, uh, yeah, one thing is, yeah, I think monotony is never good for 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 anyone. Uh, after 15 years of doing a very similar job, even though, like I said before, every every case is different, every product is different, every provision is different, etc. So, so. You, you you're not exactly doing the same job over and over again, but there's always, uh, in my case at least, there was always appetite for for trying to do something slightly different. And for a period of time, I did that um, through a secondment in the cabinet of the director general for a while. So I had that opportunity for a while to just get out of legal affairs for a few months and and go and work in the cabinet of. 
uh, director general Lamy at the time. And it was a very interesting time because it was a time of accession of new members, uh, of you know many things happening. I guess it's always a time of many things happening when you're working at the cabinet, but, but, but I thought it was an interesting period of time. And then going back to doing legal work, and, 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 I, and I enjoyed it. I, for a while, I moved to the rules division, uh, mostly because it, it had happened that for... Uh, several cases that I had done, I had done in collaboration with the rules division, and and I had uh, in, in my private practice before joining the WTO and working for government work on trade remedies. So I thought it would be an interesting area of work, and I did that for a couple of years. But then, uh, when I realized that there was an interesting opening in the area of training and technical cooperation, I thought it would be a um, a good opportunity to to change and to contribute in a different way to the work of the organization. I, I had done a lot of technical assistance missions myself when I was working in legal affairs, but I thought it would be nice to see it from the other perspective and helping organize activities for beneficiary countries. And that's also like a bit brings you back to your interest of like teaching yes. a bit. Yeah, so everything is a bit circular. <laughs> but uh, I'm interested to see your experience because when you, you mentioned that when you were working in a dispute, you pretty much become an expert in a very narrow area. You focus on that and you study that. When you were at the cabinet, for example, uh, the DG, you were looking at things from a more broader perspective and you were looking per probably like at different topics like all the time. How would like that change? Absolutely, and you re uh, it, it was... It was really a, a great experience because when you're working in the cabinet, you're not mm, relying on your own work. You're relying on the work of the whole secretariat. When you're working on, on your dispute and you're providing advice to panelists in a way, you are relying on your own work, on your expertise, on, you know, you, you, it's, uh, you're more confident in what you're doing uh, in terms of you know, the, your individual input. But here you have to learn to be uh, as confident and uh, in the work of all of your colleagues in the secretariat, and you realize you know, what amazing job everyone is doing in other areas. So, so it was really good for for me to have that opportunity to to work for the director general because then you you really have to get in touch with with colleagues all around the house. Uh, whether uh, I was covering topics such as accession. Um, legal matters, so trade remedies, but also legal affairs, but also the appellate body. I was also covering certain regions of the world, so the Western Hemisphere, Australia, New Zealand, Europe, um, the former Soviet uh, countries that were in, many of whom were acceding to the WTO. And so it was a large portfolio, and of course uh, you, you were relying on, on the technical expertise of all of your colleagues in the house. And it was great. And now uh, you went back to trade remedies, but then now in, in training. And as training, can you tell me like what is the, what are some of the priorities that you look uh, in your current role? So, the WTO has a long tradition in doing training, and it started even before the WTO with the GATT. There is a product in particular called, called the Trade Policy Course that was developed by the GATT in the 1950s. 
and we've been doing it without interruption, mostly f since the 1950s, and then when the, the GATT became the WTO, we've continued to do trade policy course. And um, there's been thousands of people who have participated in these trade policy courses. Now, one of the things we, we do in the Secretariat is we, uh, because of the mandate that we have from members, we design uh, our ac training activities to be demand-driven. So we want to always make sure that uh, the training and the technical cooperation that we provide is responsive to the actual needs of beneficiaries, which are developing countries and least developed countries. And for that, uh, what we do is we, very every couple of years, we draw up questionnaires that we send to all beneficiaries to try and find out what their priorities are in terms of topics that they want to um, receive training on and technical cooperation on. And on the basis of that, uh, there's a biennial plan for training and technical cooperation that is then submitted to the approval of members. And we work on that basis. And, and so we have the trade policy courses, for example, which now is not just one trade policy course, but we have it at different levels. So we have an introductory trade policy course, an intermediate trade policy course, and an advanced trade policy course. And we have all sorts of specialized activities as well, for example, in dispute settlement, but also in intellectual property or services, etc. And finally, we also respond to specific requests of technical cooperation from individual countries. So if a country needs some training, for example, on customs valuation, they can ask the secretariat and the secretariat would then tailor make to measure, mm -hmm. yeah, tailor make a course on, on that topic on customs valuation, for example, provide the resource people and finance the activity. And uh, do you also take part in, part in the actual designing and also the teaching? Uh, or often, uh, but not always. By and large, the teaching is done by the experts. Yeah. So if we organize an activity on any particular topic, we normally call upon our colleagues in the house who are the experts on those topics. But um, very often, we also in the Institute provide some of the training. And uh, I want to hear your perspective because you've seen the WTO develop over many years. How... How is the WTO now uh, compared to when you started here? Well, in, not just since when I started. Or in, throughout, yeah, yeah. In 2003, but s since 2003 that I've been here, I've seen um, a lot of uh, changes, let's say, uh, different moments in time in, in the WTO with great expectation at some moment and great optimism and then moments of pessimism, and, um, and, and it's a bit cyclical. But when you look at the story also, well before I joined, you look at the story of the GATT, you look at the story of the first years of the WTO, I think that's not uncommon, that we've had periods in which there was a lot of a, a multilateral activity and, and meeting of minds, etc., and there have been periods of Uh, pessimism or periods of uh, when the whole notion of multilateralism um, is questioned by some of the actors. Now, I think um, despite all of this, I think there's a, there's a common thread, which is 
I believe, in, by and large, uh, members are convinced of the necessity of having these multilateral institutions because they are convinced that there are some challenges that cannot be dealt with otherwise. Uh, there are challenges in, in many sectors, in, whether it's you know, in a pandemic or whether it's environmental concerns with issues such as climate change or uh, the depletion of... Uh, uh, fisheries or you know so, so there are many issues that are global in nature and that there's no way to address them and and, and uh, if it's not on a global scale on a multilateral scale and so you know there may be differences in approaches and in and in intensity of certain things but I think that the thread the, the common thread is I think there's a joint understanding of the necessity of having these institutions. And then, of course, there are, as, as always, there are differences uh, in details and, and what members are uh, willing to commit at a certain point in time. But I, I think uh, right now we are at a, at a very interesting period because we have, um, I think we have a growing realization uh, of uh, some of the global challenges that probably wasn't present you know, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. So, for example, the issue of climate change, I think, is now more of a, there's more of a consensus of the need to act. And with the pandemic as well, I think it's, it's more clear than ever that we need the possibility of having some more coordinated responses, not just in the area of trade, but also in the area, for example, of access to medical technologies, uh, in the area of uh, common responses to pandemics, etc., in a coordinated manner between all the national governments and also the multilateral institutions, uh, probably in a much more clear way than before COVID-19. And, and so, so despite all the difficulties that we're uh, facing, and I think that, that it's, it's very clear that we're facing a lot of challenges at the multilateral level, I think there's a common understanding that we need to uh, work together. Uh, and you mentioned that everything is cyclical, so you've seen it uh, firsthand. Mm -hmm. And now you see like, that there's a, like an increased awareness that I think that uh, there's a realization that we need this multilateral system. So now we're like on a positive, on a positive, I don't know how to call mm -hmm. it, but uh, so that's good. That's a... That's uh, uh, encouraging. Mm -hmm. And I think that the fact that members, for example, decided a couple of years ago to appoint Ngozi, Dr. Ngozi as DG, in a way is a reflection of that understanding, that they decided that it was time to kind of shake the way in which um, things had been done in the past, uh, not because there's nothing to... Um, to keep from the past, because I think it, you know, there's plenty of, of treasure to be made of all the advances that have been made on a multilateral level, but just because the nature of the challenges is diverse. And so, so I think one of the things that they found attractive probably in, in the message that the DG was conveying is the need to um, look at trade, not in the traditional way that we looked at it, but also as a means to achieve certain uh, objectives, objectives that are, are already in the treaty. 
they're already in the treaty, but that sometimes, because we were so focused on, on, on specific issues, we were losing uh, the view of the, of the forest. It's true. Uh, I also want to talk about, I've seen you are very active on, on LinkedIn, and I, I really appreciate your post that a lot of them are looking at the history of uh, where we've come from. What, uh, what's your thinking behind this? Well, I, um, you know, we hear so many bad things about uh, social media, and I think there are, of course, plenty of risks uh, on social media. I have, you know, young daughters, and, and, and I'm always concerned about the impact and that social media will have on future generations, and there's so much uh, you know, toxic elements of social media, but, but it's also true that, that uh, media themselves very often are not the, you know, what, what is to blame, is how you use them. And, um, and social media also allows you to reach a lot of people in an in a immediate manner in, in a, uh, that you couldn't otherwise do. And so, yes, so, so platforms such as LinkedIn and others allow that, that possibility to reach out to, to colleagues, to friends, to, to people, and sometimes much beyond that. Much, you, you sometimes get then responses from people that, that you have no idea. <laughs> yeah. and, and I, you know, I, I assume you, you must be very familiar with this notion through your podcast as well. You, know, you put that up, that up uh, uh, and then you, know, you, you expect some people that are part of this tightly knit community to have access to it, but, but you don't know, you know you, you, you're going to be reaching people that you didn't expect you would reach. A yeah, what you're saying, that uh, there's many bad things, but this is one of the good things. Actually, I mean, people write to me from places that I don't know, but just recently in Kenya, I was walking and someone recognized me and I was like, how, this, how do you even know? I thought only people in Geneva knew, <laughs> exactly. but this is amazing. Oh, well, and, and that's one big difference, for example, of, of the trade community now and the trade community, say, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. It was much, uh, uh, much more limited. It, it is still a relatively it's limited still like a small world. Yeah, it is still a small world as compared to other professions, to other areas. Uh, but when you compare it to how it was 30 years ago, it's much more diverse. It's much more extended now than it was then. And now, because of all these media that we have. We have uh, websites and we have social media, uh, we have podcasts, we have all these instruments. Uh, uh, the reach of many of these ideas goes much beyond. One of the reasons why I created it was because I do love doing it and talking to interesting individuals like you. But one of the main reasons that I did it is because many people reached out to me, interested in getting into this world. And I realized that I was telling them like my experience, my story of how I did it. But uh, the beauty of this is that people can hear the story of many other people because my story is my story, but there are a million ways to get into this. What advice could you give young professionals looking to get into this world? I think your point is perfectly uh, taken. I think um, my, my personal experience is everyone I've met has arrived to this uh, profession through very different paths and um, so there's no like, like you said there's no one single path uh, if you're interested in working in 
international trade law. And, um, and in fact, um, complementary to that, I think one of the, the models that is in crisis right now, it's kind of like the single career, the single job that was so prevalent decades ago. So, so for many people, decades ago, and, and, uh, and it may still happen in some parts of the world, if you're lucky enough, you can find a job in one place, for example, in the area of international trade, and just have a career develop in that same organization and then retire after 30 years or 35 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah and, and, you know, so for some people that works nowadays, but I think more and more the stories that I hear for, from people are much more haphazard than that. Mm -hmm. uh, people start working in one place and then they you know, work for a few months here and then they move, for example, to academia and they are there for a couple of years and then they move to a national government and they work there and then they work as an intern somewhere or then they work. Uh, and so uh, most of the, the, of the people that I work in have had this very unpredictable careers and um, and they're enriched by that very often very often uh, it enriches the way in which they look at things because they can you know they have the national perspective but they have also worked in an international organization they have also worked in private practice so they have that adds to another perspective as well and um, and so so if if you were asking me you know what kind of advice would i give to a young person that is interested in working on trade law would be to to try to gain as much experience to try to take advantage of any opportunity that opens not necessarily to put all the eggs in one basket i've seen sometimes um, young colleagues who who probably apply to the wto secretariat and and they don't uh, get a response on the first time that they applied and, uh, and, and I can tell from personal experience that that can be frustrating. I applied several times before I was called for an interview. But what I would suggest is don't give up. Uh, in the meantime, try to do other things that you find professionally enriching and that can help you build that experience and, and be in a better position for when you are called for an interview. I, actually, that's what you were saying got me thinking something that I, when I started here, I was looking at, at a job, when I started working in international topics, I was looking at from the perspective of the old days where you would work in one place and you would retire from that place. And the fluidity with things happen here was a bit scary. But because I was looking at from the old way to look at things. I don't know if that's changed. I think it's changed for the younger generation. They don't look at that. So perhaps it won't be as scary as it was for me for them but I remember that being something that really like froze me to death mm. and uh, that was well that was one of the main obstacles at the time I hope that's changing a bit but yeah perseverance is, is important I think perseverance is really important and and I do have a feeling that you know speaking with younger people they are more open to this notion yeah. of changing jobs once they're you know, they're not satisfied anymore in a particular uh, position and looking for something else. And also not, um, you know, not necessarily accepting certain, certain things that one in the past would accept. Uh. I was talking to someone, a young uh, professional, and they had a job offer and they didn't take it. And I was like, 
I I would have taken it, but their point of view is completely different. Yes. Yeah. They do want to have something that's fulfilling, that's interesting, perhaps even more than the professional opportunities. They want their job to mean something. Hmm. Jorge, it has been a pleasure. I want to try something new. It's the first time we do it for the podcast. It's uh, like a, a quick questionnaire mm-hmm. where I will ask you some questions, nothing too bad, but uh, you just uh, tell me what comes to your mind. All right. You let's want to try, try it? Let's try it. <laughs> If it works, we'll have it in future episodes. You will be the first one. Okay. Let's try it. I'm willing to be the guinea pig. <laughs> but just please tell me what you comes to your mind and the sure. simple idea. What's the best advice you've ever gotten? Best advice I've ever gotten. <laughs> I've gotten so much good <laughs> advice. That's the thing. I'm I'm really grateful in my life because I've gotten so much good advice in life. And uh yeah, I guess I I cannot pinpoint one single instance because because you know, I I really owe so many debts to people who have given me advice throughout my life that I, I can't think of anyone. Sorry about that. No, We started on a wrong <laughs> note. It's okay. I mean, I don't know if this would work. What's the best advice you've ever given? Well, I think um, the best advice that I try to give is what we just said. For for people who are young, for example, and who who, who are interested in, in entering in the, in, in the area of trade law, to be persistent, not to lose hope, and to, yeah... What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I guess uh, journalism is one thing that I loved. And I, I, I was, because uh, teaching is one thing that I did manage to do and I have managed to do. But journalism is something that I haven't been able to pursue. And I, I, and, and I love the profession. I, I, I admire the people who do serious journalism. Although I think that profession has been one of the professions most affected by technology and new, the new world. Mm. What's something you wish you had known 20 years ago? That, um, that things uh, would turn out well. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Pineapple in pizza? No. No. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you being Italian, probably that sounds a bit... Uh... Yes, yes. I, <laughs> I cannot say otherwise. Otherwise, I'll be uh, excluded from my family. <laughs> Drama or comedy? Well, they, they say that the first time is drama and the second time it becomes farce. <laughs> so maybe life is a bit of both. Yeah. Uh, who's your favorite artist of all time? Favorite artists of all time. Uh, I love music, so I'm gonna go with uh, Ennio Morricone. Ah, great, great composer. Uh, this is not for an advice, but one recommendation that you would give, what would it be? Um, be willing to experiment new things, be willing to try new things. And last, um, how would you like to be remembered? As a kind person, that tried to do yeah, the best that they could, a kind person. Great, Jorge, thank you very much. Uh, what do you think about this? Should I continue or not? <laughs> uh, yes, and, and hopefully you'll get more intelligent responses from all of, uh, from your future. No, no, it was great. Yeah. I mean, but maybe you'll be at a disadvantage. 
because others might know the questions in advance. But um, but it's uh, it's great to have spoken to you. It's uh, it's it's great to to have the opportunity to talk in a more relaxed setting about. Uh, Uh, our life have this conversation and I, I really want to congratulate you for this effort because I know it takes a lot of effort to, to continue things in life. I, I've done it for several years but honestly I do it like out of love and I just love doing it. I hopefully will do it for many years. But it was great talking to you and actually also connecting the dots to some of my previous guests. Absolutely. That was also great. Thank you. Thank you Thanks. This was the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig it?